Hello and welcome back to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan, beside me is Ben, and we thank you as always for joining us as we talk about our passions for the past while being young at heart. We're bringing back another fan favorite, another favorite of ours as well, Then and Now, Volume 4. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Margaret Thatcher, Katherine Johnson, and um, Hedy Lamar. We wanted to kind of take a look at influential women throughout history since International Women's Day was just this past week. Um, and, you know, there's there's so many influential women to talk about that have changed pop culture from back then and, and kind of, you know, made our society what we is what it is now and, and kind of how people look up to these figures from back in the day. So we, we, we try to pick um, a lot of people that could relate to... To things that we've talked about in the past in terms of science and math, history, um, movies, p- politics, anything like that. So uh, we're talking about Margaret Thatcher, Katherine Johnson, and Hedy Lamarr. And uh, you know, just one, one little quick side note: coming up on a year of podcasting between Ben and I uh, in April. Young Nostalgia will be live for a year um, coming up this April. So we're looking for any you know topics. Any ideas that our listeners that stuck with us from the beginning, even if you, this is your first episode, listen to us, give us an idea of what you'd like to hear or something big for our first um, first year show um, coming up in April. So you can give us those that feedback at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. That's youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate us and follow us, subscribe and share. We're out there on iTunes, um, Google Play, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, any way you get your podcast, you'll be able to find Young Nostalgia. Without further ado, uh, it's great to be back. Ben, how you doing, big guy? Oh, I'm doing good. We're about a, a day ahead of schedule, you know, you know uh, that we're normally doing it day before, and so it's it's good to be a little less stressful today. No, I totally agree. And then we're actually going to actually release on our actual release days instead of Wednesday <laughs> for the past couple of weeks. We're actually going to, like, when you're listening to this, it's actually going to be Tuesday. So it, it's great. yeah it's we've been kind of lax with that we've been a couple of busy guys and so you know uh a a hobby podcast kind of takes the back seat which is unfortunate but it's just kind of the way it has to be yeah even though we are a hobby it's insane how professional that we are yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) dramatic pause to try and figure out what to say well, I heard some. I, I was I was also hearing some background noise in in the house here, and I was kind of like multitasking trying to figure out what the heck was going on. <laughs> All right, man, let's stop wasting time and bring uh, bring the entertainment that these people look forward to. Then and now, Volume Four. What you got? All right, starting out with the then the then <laughs> for Margaret Thatcher, uh, born October thirteenth, nineteen twenty five. And she passed away in April on April eighth of two thousand thirteen. So not that long ago. Um, after pursuing an education in chemistry through Oxford, Margaret Thatcher's political career was started by attending the local conservative association representing the university graduate conservative association. <laughs> That's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of wordy, but but. Uh, you know, that's it was really more of just attending events is really what kind of got her started. Um, and then eventually she was selected as a candidate for Finchley in April 1958 um, by narrowly beating Ian uh, Montague Frazier for the Conservative Party. Um, 
She was elected as MP for the seat after a hard campaign in the 1959 election. Um, so it was her extreme uh, drive as well as her talent with political, uh, just having the political mindset as well as her, her speaking um, caused her to be mentioned as a future prime minister in her early 20s, although... Uh, herself, she was used a little bit more pessimistic about it, um, saying, quote, there will not be a woman prime minister in my lifetime, um, and that the male population is too prejudiced. So, you know, it's kind of funny that she would be quoted saying that because she would end up being the first prime minister, <laughs> first woman prime minister, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, e- even backing up a little bit, like before, you know, she was in Oxford and all this stuff for um, her chemistry degree and everything like that. And it's so interesting seeing how, like, her background is so not formed by policy or anything like that. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not political in nature. But there was something about she was applying to grad schools um, or wanted to be a part of an organization, and they declined her because she was too headstrong. <laughs> and it's like you know it's she almost had that perfect mindset for for political meandering um and it's you know it just kind of starts small and, and it's interesting because like the people that you would never think or have a background in that become almost more prominent in in a thing that their mind is geared toward but their background isn't it's interesting it is it is um and, and you know you'd say <laughs> she was declined from being too headstrong that's just not you wouldn't think that's something that you would someone would get turned down for that's normally what you know if if it if your views align kind of with the association's views that's something that they would really want in <laughs> a member you'd think normally but yeah but this is know, also kind of weird this is also politics they do not think normally oh yeah that is that that is very true <laughs> Truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> Carry on, brother. <laughs> All right. In October of 1961, she was promoted to the front bench as par- parliamentary undersecretary at the Ministry of Pensions and National Insurance by Harold Macmillan. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is the names of these departments <laughs> and that sort of thing are such a ridiculous mouthful. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a whole bunch of political mouthfuls of nonsense <laughs> yeah and everything you know has way too many syllables for describing <laughs> what exactly it does and just yeah make yeah. it complicated and then there's acronyms so, like oh yeah, wazoo. yeah. <laughs> no kidding no kidding um she ended up being the youngest woman in history to receive such a post um and among the first mps elected in 1959 to ever be promoted so, you know, we kind of see uh, an overall trend already, and she's the first at this, the best at this, you know. Mm-hmm. And we see that already, and she's already at, you know, a relatively low-level um, kind of positions. In in the grand scheme of things, they're pretty pretty low-level. But So, after the conservatives lost the 1964 election, she became a spokesman on housing and land, um, in which... Uh, positions she advocated her party's policy for allowing tenants to buy their council houses. Um, 
And then moving forward a little bit, we have the Conservative Party led by Edward Heath, won the 1970 general election, and Thatcher was subsequently appointed to the cabinet as Secretary of State for Education and Science. Um, and it was during her first months in office she attracted public attention as a consequence of the government's attempt to cut spending. She gave priority to academic needs in schools um, while also administering public expenditure cuts on the state education system, which resulted in uh, the abolition of free milk for school children aged 7 to 11. Yeah. I mean, the, the secretary of school education, that was kind of her major break into the, like the public eye. Maybe not in the mm-hmm. best interest of the public eye, though, because I mean, everyone <laughs> was like, why would you just get rid of milk? And I mean, I thought it was interesting <laughs> to put it in here just because of, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, just to, it doesn't matter what country you're in. But like when you're in a conservative mindset, it's where can you cut back on certain governmental costs that mm-hmm. won't be detrimental? And, and then, you know, it, it's interesting to see how she's playing on the policy and, and kind of um, sticking to the mindset of her of her background of, um, you know, starting in the conservative track. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, they either a uh, they get it. They get to a point where they they can't live up to what they have always necessarily believed in, and so they kind of change to fit the voters, and so they don't lose their job, basically. <laughs> and or people go a different route where they stick to their guns, and then they totally just get ousted from office because you know their people are unhappy with you know what what's going on, and and so being able to go through something like you know people being unhappy with cuts to education, which is not always the most popular uh, standpoint um, and then be able to move past that and you know, actually uh, build a career on top of that is, you know, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> so in 1976, uh, Thatcher made a foreign policy speech, uh, which lambasted the lambasted excuse me the soviet union for seeking world dominance um nicknamed her britain awake speech the soviet army journal or the red star uh rebutted her stance in a piece entitled iron lady raises fears by captain yuri uh gavrilov uh the sunday times covered the article the next day and thatcher embraced the statements a week later in a speech she compared it to the Duke of Wellington's nickname, the Iron Duke. Um, The nickname followed her throughout her political career and has become a generic descriptor for strong-willed female politicians. The Iron Lady. Um, Yeah, and, you know, that's just kind of something she was known, you know, that it just kind of became part of her, not necessarily with this particular incident, but more of just her in general, just not backing down, and, you know, she won't, she won't back down when she starts catching a lot of crap. If anything, she just kind of, uh, kind of uh, intensifies a little bit and goes uh-huh. after them even more. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um, and then moving all the way forward to May f- uh, May fourth, nineteen seventy nine, uh, Thatcher became the prime minister, and she was to remain in office throughout the nineteen eighties. For most of her premiership, she was described as the most powerful woman in the woman in the world, which uh, I would say is a pretty accurate description. Yeah, I agree. I mean, e- even when we move <laughs> it into the now, uh, you know, after her prime minister years, 
people still looked for her for like political commentary where if something oh, was yeah. happening around the world it was like what does margaret thatcher think um i mean it, her opinion was so popular whether you agreed with it or not she was such mm-hmm. a figure in politics that it was like we want to get margaret thatcher's side of the story yeah yeah and you know that was like you said it was not even necessarily from people who necessarily aligned with all of her views it was just her in general uh her, her just her her nature to say it like it is and you know not necessarily sugarcoat things <laughs> which <laughs> i think uh, a lot of people like i know i definitely like that in a some any sort of public figure <clears throat> all right shifting gears into the now uh covering margaret thatcher so upon leaving the house of commons uh, thatcher became the first former prime minister to actually set up her own foundation in terms of um political fundraising uh, philanthropic dollars and everything like that. So uh, it was actually like the Margaret Thatcher Foundation as um, as far as I know. But uh, it was kind of disbanded back in 2005 just due to um, money constraints and everything like that, um, as well as her health. She wrote two volumes of memoirs, The Downing Street Years, uh, written in 1993, and The Path to Power back in 1995. Um, and I believe the Downing Street, like Downing Street, is um, the famous and well-known house of prime ministers. Things like mm-hmm. you can think of as like the White House or anything like that. Um, and she kind of just kind of uh, narrates and talks about how the inner workings of um, of her years as prime minister and how that house kind of related to her during during her terms. Right, and yeah, and. This Downing Street, it it was pretty much about her. It was pretty much focused around just her experience in the uh, in the premiership, and 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 later on, there was the 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 path to power was more of a kind of overall um, life. I don't even know how to say it. Just kind of a an encompassing of her mentality and how she built her career up. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Throughout the years after her premiership, she was a renowned speech giver and was often called upon to make comments about current uh, political affairs around the world, which we touched on before. Uh, On June uh, June 11th, 2004, Thatcher, um, actually against doctor's orders because her health was kind of declining, Um, she was having a lot of uh, health issues in terms of strokes, dementia, uh, things like that. So she actually attended the state funeral service for Ronald Reagan over here in the States. She delivered her eulogy via videotape, which was actually um, recorded several months earlier just due to her health. But uh, Thatcher flew to California with a Reagan entourage um, and attended the memorial service that uh, intermittent ceremony for the president at Ronald Reagan Presidential Library uh, that year as well. And and that's 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 pretty cool. I mean, they had the foresight to um, you have the, her eulogy set up um, months and months beforehand because it was it would have been uh, such a uh, a powerful you know a, a person like Margaret Thatcher giving a eulogy for Ronald Reagan. I mean, that's not something you can just kind of leave up to uh, 
leave up to happenstance. If, you know, if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, they just had to make sure that this has to happen. And so we're going to have to record this right now in the event that she can't do it later on, which I think is pretty cool. And, and, uh, it kind of is a pretty good piece of, uh, foresight. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, it's, it's so monumental just because of how, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, you know, they kind of had their terms along the same lines. I mean, their mm-hmm. heads were kind of in the same place in terms of the conservatism um, and things like that. And they kind of, you know, their terms aligned because of throughout the 80s, you know, Ronald Reagan was president. And um, I, I know they had a close relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Thatcher's tenure of 11 years and 209 days as prime minister was the longest since Lord Salisbury and the longest continuous period in office since Lord Liverpool. Uh, these are just kind of, you know, factoids going out um, in, in the history of of uh, British. What are you laughing about? I don't know. <laughs> Not really. I was just kind of laughing at Salisbury and Liverpool. It's just oh. kind of funny, funny <laughs> names. Salisbury steak. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> so uh, Mar- Margaret Thatcher, having led her party to general election victories three times in a row, twice in a landslide, she ranks as the most popular party leader throughout British history in terms of votes cast for the winning party with over 40 million ballots cast for the conservatives in a total between 1979 and 1987. That's insane. Her final election win was hailed as a historic hat trick, quote unquote, because <laughs> that was her third time in a row winning the seat. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any sort of, any sort of uh, a win like that is you, no matter who it's for it's exciting because that just doesn't happen very often i mean so many times you know people win by a lot you know when you say you someone wins by a lot in an election it's really not that much until it's a landslide like this where it's just it just just never happens oh yeah insane (laughs) that's that's that is insane that's holy cow (laughs) that's who was voted the fourth greatest prime minister of the 20th century uh, th- these are kind of going off of, you know, polls, public polls, public opinions and, and everything like that. So back in 2002, she ranked highest among living persons in the BBC poll for 100 Greatest Britons. In 1999, Time deemed Thatcher one of the 100 most important people throughout the 20th century. In 2015, she topped a poll by Scottish Widows, a major financial services co- uh, company, um, as the most influential woman throughout the past 200 years. And uh, last one coming at you is 19, excuse me, is 2016, Margaret Thatcher topped BBC Radio 4's uh, Women's Hour Power list. Say that 10 times fast. Um, (laughs) So it was BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour Power list of women judged to have had the biggest impact on female lives over the past 70 years. Oh, this was terrible. Okay, in 2016... Margaret Thatcher topped the list for BBC Radio in terms of <laughs> the biggest impact on female lives over the past 70 years. There we go. I should have just said that from the beginning. Yeah, you just got to <laughs> simplify it. That is such a mess of words. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to, th- to sum that, all that up, Margaret Thatcher was very much an influential woman throughout the years, um, You know, both in, both in just the way she carried herself, um, the kind of image that you know, she brought to empower women um, and their rights along with just her political um, political milestones, I guess, that she achieved throughout mm-hmm. her career. 
Yeah, I mean, it's holy cow. I mean, all the stuff that she has that she has won is just amazing, and and it's not like stuff where it's oh yeah, you're woman of the year, you're this of the year, this of. I mean, some of these were uh, as most influential women in the past two hundred years. Twentieth um, century. Of, I mean, yeah, one of the hundred most important people that yeah twenty like twentieth century. There's another twentieth century. Um, BBC Radio just, 4's Women's Hour Power List. <laughs> Absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. It's, you know, there's not very many people who can win all of that. You know, you might win one. Okay, that's cool. But all of these, we have a whole list here of just, you know, win, uh, awards and accolades and all kinds of stuff. Yep. <clears throat> all right. On to the next. All right, Katherine Johnson, who was born August 26th of 1918. Still alive. She's going to be turning 100 this year in August. Oh, that's fantastic. It's amazing. That is really cool. But I, I, I guess uh, in, case, in case nobody has heard of Katherine Johnson, um, to give a little bit of the background, she was one of the main headliners or characters or whatever um, in the 2016 movie Hidden Figures. Katherine Johnson mm-hmm. was the one... Um, to actually figure out that math problem for the trajectory of the rocket um, and everything like that for like John Glenn um, and as well as the first astronaut in space for the Americans. Boom. Great. All Great. right. Base is laid. All right. All right. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. Um, so at a very early age, Johnson uh, had a very prominent talent for math. Uh, she graduated high school at the age of 14 and, and and immediately entered West Virginia State, um, and where she ended up taking every single math course offered by the college, which is ridiculous because <laughs> I know myself I can barely handle the college math by myself, <laughs> let alone all of the courses. And here I am, dad, <laughs> dating a math graduate student. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Catherine was mentioned by some of the most influential people in mathematics at this time, including W.W. Shiflin Clater, who was the third African-American to receive a Ph.D. in math. Uh, She ended up graduating in 1937 with degrees in mathematics and French. Um, Kind of two odd things to have degrees in, but um, all of this happened at the age of 18. So she had two full degrees at the age of 18. That's insane. Here we are, 23 years old, and we haven't done anything. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I know. We're a couple of bums. We're a couple of bums. (laughs) Um, So after being in and out of graduate school for mathematics, she became the first African-American woman to attend graduate school at West Virginia University. Um, And it was not until 1952 at a family gathering, excuse me, that a relative mentioned that the uh, National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, or NACA, was hiring mathematicians. Um, the NACA hired African-American mathematicians as well as whites uh, for their guidance and navigation department. So later on in 1953, Johnson was actually offered a job there. Um, she accepted and became part of the extremely early NASA team. Yeah, I mean NASA super cool. NASA, yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean NASA wasn't even a thing. They called it the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, like it mm-hmm. wasn't. 
it wasn't um, what we know as it today. But I mean, she was influential in terms of uh, the mathematics and the research and everything behind the scenes that made our spaceflight um, history what it is today. Right. I mean, her job was essentially to work as a computer. She she is doing the same work that we have computers doing nowadays. Exactly. Um, and so from 1958 to, or excuse me, 1953 to 1958, um, she was basically analyzing topics uh, such as gust elevation for aircraft and other basically just computation kind of uh, problems. Uh, she was originally assigned to the West Area Computer Section. Um, Johnson was then reassigned to the Guidance and Control Division of Langley's Flight Research Division, which was staffed by all uh, white male engineers. So kind of setting up for you know, a little bit of conflict in there. And that's kind of what a lot of the uh, movie covers Yep, that she was, if I'm not mistaken. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just so interesting because like she, she sees what's going on and then like understands and knows what to do to help in terms of equations and things like that. But they don't really turn to her for answers until later on because pretty much what she was doing was just double checking numbers of other people. Of, of mm-hmm. the other engineers, but they would like block out things where she couldn't even complete or um, recompute it to make sure that the numbers checked out. So she was, you know, battling this as along with, you know, trying to just get as equal opportunity as anybody else. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, how do you expect someone to do their job if you don't give them what give you, if you're not provided with what you need? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then, you know, it just makes you look bad, but it's not really your fault you, that you can't do what you need to do. But yep. yeah, I mean, yeah. just a, an amazing it's story. Horribly frustrating. Very frustrating. Um, from 1958 until her retirement all the way in 1986, Johnson worked as an aerospace technologist um, moving during her career to the spacecraft controls branch. Um, there she calculated the trajectory for the May 5th, 1961 space flight of Alan Shepard, the first American in space, as well as calculated the launch window for his 1961 Mercury mission. Uh, in addition to that, she also plotted backup navigational charts for astronauts in case of electronic failures. Uh, when NASA used electronic computers for the first time to calculate John Glenn's orbit around the Earth, officials called on Johnson to verify the computer's numbers. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, <laughs> that's, and that's fantastic. Yeah, it is. That, it is. Um, and then uh, going on top of that, Glenn uh, actually had asked for her specifically and refused to fly unless Johnson personally verified the calculation. Isn't that awesome? Like she was, Wait. she was just like this beyond human in terms of her abilities and and the way she influenced nasa it's so cool yeah i mean that's really cool you know doing kind of leading all these calculations is one thing but then when computers were invented to do this to do all of this going back through and double checking the computers is (laughs) that is super awesome it is oh (laughs) so 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 cool all right gonna switch gears into the now um, and kind of talk about like her living legacy. So throughout her career, Johnson co-authored 26 scientific papers, 26. 
Her social influence spans generations, um, continuing on today as a pioneer in space science as well as computing and as a role model role model um, for a life um, in science, like in a science career, a huge role model. Um, Johnson was named West Virginia State College Outstanding Alumnus of the Year back in 1999, I would say rightfully given. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous that it took that long. <laughs> yeah, right. It should have been a few years um, uh, before that. Uh, President Barack Obama presented uh, Katherine Johnson with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of only 17 Americans so honored on November 24th back in 2015. That's amazing. I mean, that's just something, you know, it's, it's, you can't even describe that kind of honor and, and, uh, and feeling that could have been, um, for her to get that, to get that recognition. Oh yeah. That recognition, you know, that, that high of an award for a, essentially a, a civilian, um, I guess she was, I mean, yeah, she wasn't in any sort of, she was part of NASA, but it's not like you know, she was any sort of uh, military background or military work for that matter. Um, so yeah, civilian. Um, but that getting that sort of award is, is pretty amazing. Um, and you know, of not very, you know, that's not a award that's given out very often. You know, you ha- not only do you have to do something extremely special, but <laughs> you still might not get that award. You have uh-huh. to, you know, you, you have to be just on the next level yeah. to be able to even be considered for that. Yeah. Insane. Um, she has been cited as a pioneering example of African-American women in the STEM programs or science, technology, engineering, and math. On May 5th, 2016, a new 40,000-square-foot building was named Katherine G. Johnson Computational Research Facility and formerly dedicated to the agency's Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia, where her career um, was stationed at while she was uh, with NASA. In 2016, Johnson was also included in the list of BBC's list of 100 influential women worldwide. And then uh, from that article, NASA actually stated, quote, her calculations proved as critical to the success of the Apollo moon landing program and the start of the space shuttle program as it did to those first steps on the country's journey into space, end quote. And I think that's a perfect note to end our then and now for Katherine Johnson. Yeah, it is. And and not only uh, having that uh, influential of a life, but also still being alive, you know, born in 1918, still being alive. So it, not, not necessarily something that happens very often um, on both of those accounts. And and she's she's doing both. She's still she's still kicking. Absolutely great. Any <laughs> listeners out there that haven't seen Hidden Figures, I would pick that pick that movie up as soon as possible and watch it before you listen to uh, Young Nostalgia next week. I was about to say I'll this week, have... but they can't tell the future. <laughs> I'll actually have to do that because I actually haven't seen it either. What? Yeah, I'm a bum. I'm oh, a bum. Man, great movie. Absolutely great. <laughs> All right, rounding out the show, what do we got, big guy? Okay, moving on to the third and final topic of the show. We have Hedy Lamar, born November 9th, 1914. Uh, she died January 19th, 2000. In the late 1920s, Lamar was discovered as an actress and brought to Berlin by producer Max, Rein- Max Reinhardt. Uh, following her career in theater, she returned to Ravenna to work in the film industry, uh, first as a script girl and soon after as an actual actress. 
on August 10th, 1999. Against her parents' wishes, Lamar, uh, she ended up marrying Frederick Mandel, an Austrian military arms merchant and munitions manufacturer who um, was supposedly, at this time, the third richest man in Austria. And that didn't really uh, go that well. I guess he was a extremely controlling husband who ended up keeping her pretty much as prisoner in their home and didn't really want her out doing anything um especially out anything in public um and she it wasn't very long until she decided to leave him and her country um because around this time it was uh it was starting to get it was starting to be a bad time you know in austria with uh uh you know, this is just a few years before the before uh, World War II started to break out, um, and it was it's actually kind of interesting. In her autobiography, she wrote that she disguised herself as a maid and fled to Paris, but a lot of other people uh, that knew her and knew the family um, that she actually just flat out escaped with all her jewelry she asked him if he could wear all of her jewelry to a party and then just bounced and left <laughs> and took her jewelry as a form of as a form of money so she it, it's an excuse to take a lot of money with yeah. her basically which yeah. is kind of it's kind of funny i guess it's a good way of doing that it is a good way of doing that. um and we're kind of moving a little bit more into her actual career um she Arrived in Paris in 1937 and met Louis B. Mayer, who was scouting for talent in Europe. Um, and she, uh, he persuaded her to change her name to Hedy Lamar, um, and that's how we pretty much that that's what we know of her actual name today. Um, choosing her surname, the surname, in homage to the beautiful silent film star Barbara Lamar, um, and then before eventually moving to Hollywood in 1938. And pretty much over the course of her early career, she became typecast as a arc, uh, a classic uh, glamorous seduct seductress of exotic origin, uh, where she was pretty much cast opposite actors like Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, um, also alongside Lana Turner and Judy Garland. So she was pretty much at an early start. Um, put right drop right in there with the big name actors and actresses which is pretty cool yeah yeah um so between 1940 and 1949 uh she actually made 18 films which is that's quite a lot in a just about a nine year span um after leaving mgm in 1945 she uh saw her biggest success as Delilah in, Cece in Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah, uh, which was the highest grossing film of 1949. Um, though in the moving on more into the 1950s, this is where her story act really gets pretty interesting. Um, in the 1950s, her career really started to decline, and she actually took up inventing to kind of relieve some of her boredom, which... <laughs> <laughs> not really something we see a whole lot it's you know now we see actors and actresses okay they their career starts to decline and then it seems like they just kind of ride it out and don't really do a whole lot afterwards yeah appear, appear <laughs> on a sitcom here and there and yeah they make cameos and you know that's about it um 
and she's actually been behind quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of technology that we still see today. Um, <clears throat> she was kind of into a lot of different things, but you know, a small little stuff here and there. But a couple of the more well-known stuff she is is known for is the um, she developed an improved traffic stoplight, very reminiscent of what we see today, um, as well as a, a dissolving tablet that you would put in water and it would make a carbonated drink. Although even herself, she kind of said that it, uh, it kind of failed because it pretty much just tasted like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was about to say. That's all I could think of right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, I guess it's, you know, she still came up with it, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But, uh, and we've talked about Howard Hughes in the past and he kind of makes an appearance in here as well, which is cool. Um, it was kind of during this time period where she was inventing and learning and and uh, that she was dating Howard Hughes, um, who was actually one of the few people that really knew her inventiveness. Um, and Hughes actually gave her his team of scientists and engineers to use at her disposal. So, you know, she needed any sort of resources or help behind the scenes with anything. And she had access to that whole team to, you know, make things happen. Um, and, you know, kind of going along with that, with being with Hughes, uh, she actually has a, a hand in some of his aircraft designs, um, which is pretty cool and something that a lot of people don't know. Um, he was working on a way to make his planes faster and more efficient. Um, and so at this time, Lamar began studying aerodynamics of birds and hydrodynamics of fish, being looking at their shapes and seeing, um, commonalities between the fastest birds and the fastest fish and seeing you know what what their shape had to do with you know how uh, they were able to move move through fluid um, and she event eventually turned these uh, ideas into sketches for new wing designs um, and that you know was actually quote quoted as genius by Hughes who was commenting on it on her work years later wow um, <laughs> so cool yeah, it is cool. And, you know, you don't, you just, I don't know, you just don't see this sort of thing. You don't hear about Hedy Lamar, really. And I don't know, it's just, it's something that um, it would be nice to see more of from Hollywood and celebrities and, you know, people like that. I agree. You know, doing something else afterwards or in addition to. Yeah, I agree. But that's not even, you know, that stuff isn't really the, the, the main part of her inventiveness, which is even better. A lot of her stuff came during World War II um, with the Allied torpedoes being able to be jammed by the Axis powers. They were radio-controlled, and they could jam it. So she developed this frequency-hopping signal that could bounce around and couldn't really be tracked or jammed. And it wasn't really used at the time uh, because the Navy wasn't really looking for outside technology. They wanted everything to be developed in-house. And so... Uh, it unfortunately didn't really see practical use until 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but, you know, it was still used nonetheless. And it's actually the base technology um, that would be, that we it is the basis for things like GPS, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi that we, seen t- that we use every single day. Um, <laughs> it's that frequency hopping, bouncing back and forth constantly so it can't be uh, tracked, hacked into, uh, jammed, uh, and you know, 
just basically disrupted in any way keeping it moving around like that helps with that yeah and uh huh. and I, I don't know i just think her her story of you know her multiple careers there is is pretty interesting it's not really something that a lot of people know about no i totally agree and i think it's so cool how she kind of was the first pioneer in terms of um radio encryption I guess you know what I mean. I mean, obviously you Basically, had yeah. you had secret code and code breakers and things like this, but this was actually mm-hmm. the radio transmission itself that was encoded. It's not like a message that you're encoding. It's it's like mm-hmm. uh, how radio information was transmitted. I don't know how to explain it, but you know what I mean. It's just like I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what you're saying. I don't know about the listeners, but well, I know what you're saying. It's the encryption. <laughs> like, uh, you know, if you had a secure Wi-Fi network, you can, you can, mm-hmm. uh, you can attribute that to uh, Hedy Lamar. Yeah, yeah, and and it was this. It was it. Not only was it the the frequency actual that was being that the messages were being transmitted on. It was the frequency was bouncing around, automated. So, you know, it's not something that nobody was just turning a dial back and forth, adjusting all this stuff. It was, and that would kind of defeat the purpose of it. So it was automatic that it was bouncing around and it was just nearly impossible. It kept the enemy on their toes and you just, you never know what frequency they're on. You never know how to deal with it. So Sweet. Just sweet. All right. Yes. Going into uh, the now of Hedy Lamar's life. So Lamar actually became a neutralized citizen of the United States at age 38 <laughs> on April 10th. A naturalized citizen. What did I say? Oh. So, sorry, naturalized citizen. Yeah, on, uh, I didn't want to confuse anybody. <laughs> at the age of 38 on April 10th, 1953. And uh, actually, you know, as awesome as her early life was, uh, she kind of falls apart a little bit as we go along. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1960... Yeah, yeah. it's kind of sad the way she kind of declines so so harsh, you know, after her, her peak. Yeah, I, I agree. Um all right, in 1966, she was arrested in Los Angeles for shoplifting, with the charges eventually being dropped. And then uh, to piggyback off of that, in 1991, she was arrested on the same charge in Florida, this time for stealing $21.48 worth of laxatives and eye drops. Um, not really sure what she needed those for. Probably the sole yeah, intent purpose an- of, of, of uh, maybe she was just having some cramps and constipation. Is she... Yeah, she couldn't go to the bathroom and had dry eyes, I guess. I, <laughs> <laughs> they're two two very odd things to be stealing together. Um, she pleaded no contest to this charge to avoid a court appearance, and the charges were once again dropped in return for promise to refrain from breaking any laws for one year. And then in nineteen in the, throughout the 1970s uh, were a decade of increasing uh, seclusion for Lamar. She was offered several scripts, television commercials, and stage projects, but none piqued her interest and just kind of turned them down. In 1974, mm-hmm. she filed a $10 million lawsuit against Warner Brothers, claiming that the running parody of her name, Hedley Lamar, in the Mel Brooks comedy Blazing Saddles, infringed her right to privacy. <laughs> Brooks uh, <laughs> Brooks commented on this and said that he was flattered. The studio settled out of court for an undisclosed nominal sum of an as well as an apology to Lamar um, publicly for quote unquote almost using her name. I mean, <laughs> Mel Brooks. I mean, he's just known for for stretching pop culture references 
um, you know, just as like small little yeah. jabs, like exaggerating <laughs> certain certain personality traits of popular people at the time. Um, yeah, it's it's just funny. And and I don't know. And it is kind of funny though too. I mean, I I really enjoy Blazing Saddles. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I agree. But uh, it's it's fantastic in a terrible sort of way. And if you've seen it, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, but whenever I think of Hedy Lamar. It, I have to stop myself from saying Hedley Lamar <laughs> just because of this. Yeah. And I have to think about it every time I say it so I don't say the wrong things. And so <laughs> it definitely, you know, is at least been ingrained in my mind that that was the actual name, not just a joke. That's awesome. That's <laughs> hilarious. Um, for several years, beginning back in 1997, the boxes of Coral Draws, Corel Draws software suites were graced by a large Corel Draw image of Lamar. Lamar sued Corel for that, for using the image without her permission, with Corel countering that she did not own rights to the actual image. <laughs> so the parties actually reached an yeah. undisclosed settlement back in 1998. Uh, it was probably just more of, know. we don't want to mess with this anymore. Here's a couple million dollars. Just leave us alone. Yeah, and you know, it's it's not like it was a picture that it wasn't a picture of a headshot from her from a movie or something like that. I mean, it was basically art. Someone made it on this software. And if you don't, Corel Draw is basically like a, a drafting or vector line software that you would use for a bunch of different things, cutting out on laser cutters and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But anyway, and it was basically artwork at this point. And so, you, I mean, it's <laughs> you can't use that image without her permission because it, it it's not hers it would technically be whoever created that particular picture <laughs> which is just ridiculous yeah. oh my gosh <laughs> all right so throughout her career and her contribution to the motion picture industry lamara has a star on the hollywood walk of fame at 6247 hollywood boulevard which is actually adjacent to vine street where the walk is centered on um and in her later years, Lamar turned the, to plastic surgery to preserve the looks that she was so terrified of losing, uh, but the results actually turned out to be disastrous. And I feel like when people turn to plastic surgery, it never really turns out too pretty. Um, uh, no. <laughs> uh, so her son actually commented on this and stated that she had her breasts enlarged, her cheeks raised, her lips made bigger, and much, much more on top of that, as long as being addicted to pills. So, you know, she just kind of went down a winding road of um, not doing too well. Yeah, I don't know. And by the time this was going on, I mean, I don't have a year off the top of my head, but it was relatively late in life. And for it was pretty much like really, really late to change anything. You know, st you know, body looks, that sort of thing. If they're starting to go downhill, she kind of started doing this stuff at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> Just <to laughs> if try, that makes sense. To try and claw back up real quick. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, you know, she was kind of reaching her peak and she was trying to maintain her level of looks. It, she had already declined and was trying to, you know, trying to claw back up there and it was just not, no, oh. you can't do that. It doesn't work that no, way. I don't think so either. <laughs> Jeez. All right, Lamar, um, she passed away in Altamonte Springs, Florida, on January 19th, back in 2000, and she was the ripe old age of 85. Um, her death certificate actually cited three causes of death. Heart failure, chronic um, valvular 
heart disease and arteriosclerotic heart disease. Arteriosclerotic <laughs> heart disease. Yeah. I know why you're laughing. <laughs> I know. Was, I, I started laughing at the valvular because we had show prep earlier today uh, tripped up on that as well. And the same thing happened. On the... <laughs> I tried to iron it out, it's but not, it, it just didn't work. Yeah. I don't know. It wasn't that funny. I don't know. It just it made me laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Anything to add for amazing Hedy Lamar? Um, not not a whole lot. I mean, I don't know. It just it, it it's just it, it's kind of sad because the first part of her life was so good. Basically, I mean, she had a, a successful acting career as well as you know with all the technology that can be attributed to her, and then such a a, a steep decline right immediately afterwards you know yeah yeah but I, but i think it's great to just kind of hold on to the history that she had because she was so influential in early pop culture and movies um and to be able mm-hmm. to take a switch in your career like that and still be successful and you know have your name on stuff that today it'd be weird for us not to have like you and i wouldn't yeah. be talking right now if we didn't have the, the technology that she helped come up with um you know yeah, we wouldn't that's very true we wouldn't possibly be able to have rss feeds or be able to distribute our podcast you know people can't if you know if you listen to us on a bluetooth speaker you might not be able to do that uh it's just it's Mm -hmm. it's 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 fascinating for sure it is yeah all right well that's a wrap thanks so much for joining us here on young nostalgia this week as we continue our journey through retro pop culture as always if you enjoy the show please leave a kind review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to Young Nostalgia. And if you got a future topic or you'd like to be a guest, give Ben and I an email at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. Again, our one-year anniversary is coming up in April, so we'd really love to get some fan feedback in terms of what topics do you want to hear? What would you like our big one-year show to be? Um, if, if you haven't have any show ideas um, or series that you want us to start going forward, uh, you know, we want this podcast to be enjoyable for everyone out there. Um, you know, Ben and I love recording it, and so we're we're, we're happy to to gain any feedback and and kind of change it to to what listeners want to hear for the next year. Um, but it, you know, it's it's great to be doing it, and we're having tons of fun, and uh, we're excited to see what's in the future. Anyway, make sure you like and subscribe to us on Podbean, uh, Google Play, iTunes, everywhere that you uh, get your podcasts. Uh, you can find us on there uh, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter as well. All right. Anything else, big guy? Nope. I think we got it all for today. Nailed it. End of volume four for then and now. And as we always say here on Young Nostalgia. Keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Take care, everybody. <laughs>